have two readings this morning. Um, Genesis 3, verses 1 to 12, and then the whole of Romans 7. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. 
Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Amen. Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Father, as we think about those words, some easy to understand and some actually some quite difficult concepts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe on us today as a church family and lead us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, last year, well, there's a, a slide thing that might come up, it might not. We were struggling with it before the service, so we'll find out. <laughs> Thanks, Darren, for everything you're doing. Um, Last year, I made a New Year's resolution to learn Spanish. And a year on, I cannot speak Spanish. (laughs) I got about five hours into an audio course on Teach Yourself Spanish. And I don't know how I stopped, but I just did. Does that resonate with anybody else? Yeah, a few people nodding. I also wanted to get better at playing the piano. Uh, So I bought a keyboard and built a shelf in our dining room, and now it mocks me every day (laughs) when I think that I've hardly played it. Um, We've been exploring the gift of eternal life, that God's plan for humanity is to change them in a way to make us fully human, all that God intended us to be. It's kind of like a reset back to Eden, but not quite, because instead of going backwards, it's going forwards, that Our future is more glorious than we can imagine, even. Today, we're going to talk quite a lot about the word sin. Now, this is a strange word, I think, in the 21st century. It it feels bigger than just three letters. It's kind of an awkward word. Um, It's embarrassing to talk about. At least I find it so. But it's so central to the idea of the Christian faith and particularly to Paul's 
argument in Romans. Is, is it Weight Watchers or Slimming World that has, uh, s- describes sin? Slimming World, thanks, Pippa, describes sin as, uh, oh, <laughs> as a food that you shouldn't eat. And you get like a quota each week of your sin quota <laughs> that you're allowed to have. And uh, you know, that sin is, in every essence, a chocolate eclair. <laughs> and that's quite funny. And, but it does reveal a little the way our society thinks about sin. And actually, I think that very often I'm no different and many Christians are no different. And I suppose it's right in a basic sense uh, in, of understanding. But the New Testament doesn't refer to sin often as much as things we do wrong, but as a power as a force, as something that is alive, something that has infected humanity. We can see this when something that we think we're using as a tool of which we're the master, it becomes clear that actually we are the tool and this thing is the master. And this can happen quite subtly, actually. You know, it's really obvious with money and our relationship with money. Um, how uh, we think we're in control and we are telling money what to do only when the bank balance is threatened or whether we can see there's a way to make a little bit more but through very mild deception (laughs) or or something to the taxman or whoever, we find ourselves gripped by the power and maybe actually we find ourselves under the thumb of money rather than money being under our thumb. And you can insert many, many other things into that bracket. That something that we think we are in control of actually is in control of us. And that is what Paul is getting at when he talks about sin. It's that we're not in control of ourselves, that something else is in control of us. You'd almost say instead of a small case S sin, it's like the stuff you do wrong. But Paul really is talking about capital S sin, a power uh, something that has us under its thumb, something that has us in slavery even. Romans 7 describes a a wrestling match that every human being faces between freedom and slavery, between able to choose the good or choosing the bad. Fundamentally, uh, when we are made alive in Christ, the odds change in this wrestling match. And this is about the journey of finding our true self. This is the journey of finding our true self. That should be number one, not number two, starting with the first point. (laughs) Thanks, Darren. We can go on to the next one, though. Brilliant. Um, At the start of Romans 7, Paul uses what's actually a quite brilliant analogy, but I think um, it's quite... Sometimes I wish he could write a bit more clearly. It's quite dense. <laughs> Maybe this is when really clever preachers say, well, it, it's really clear in the Greek, but I'm not a really clever preacher, so I can't tell you that. Um, whatever it is, it's not very clear in the English. <laughs> um, but it, actually, when you, when you study it, when I spent time with it this week, it's quite a brilliant analogy. Paul describes that every human being is as if we're married to the law, something And the law is something that reveals our sinful nature. It's not wrong in itself, but it is something that shows us 
who we really are. And we're legally bound to it. We cannot escape from it. But Paul writes that when we come alive in Christ, when we receive the Spirit, when we receive this gift of eternal life, we become, it's like we're cosmically united with Jesus, that his history becomes our history. He says this, So my sisters and brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Now, this is the gospel message in this analogy. Let's say you have two people who fall in love with each other. One of them has worked very, very hard in life and has accrued wealth and status, whilst the other, not so much. When they marry, legally, the person who had little of all, the, the person who had, was bringing little to the marriage uh, partnership, that person all of a sudden shares in all of the wealth and status of the person they're marrying. Not just metaphorically, but legally. It's now as much theirs as um, it is the other person's. You know, everything I have is yours. You know, all of those things. You've Either you've said those words or you've heard them said at marriages. And that's what Paul is saying. It's as if you are bound to Christ like a marriage a union where everything he has is yours. You now belong to another, Paul writes, to Jesus. And you share in all his goodness, in his righteousness, in his status of being the beloved of the Father, that now your true identity is in him. You married very well, as the analogy would be. Married up. So, it's nothing about what you have done or what you are bringing to the table, but everything about what he has done. So this is grace. There's a great definition of what grace is. And I think the Christian faith is the only religion that describes salvation in this way, that it's not about what we have done, but what he has done on our behalf, what a saviour has done for us. And this is actually quite offensive to many um, in that lots of human beings have tried really hard. And when you hear that actually all your effort is for naught, that is quite offensive. It's not been earned, it's been given. Paul elsewhere describes this as the offense of the cross. It's offensive. So after explaining the gospel, Paul describes our previous relationship with the law. That's what we're going to look at now. So, the law unmasks sin and the divided self. He asks this question, the next verse. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wonder whether Paul talks like this just in general. <laughs> Would I like Cheerios? No, certainly not. Today I shall imbibe Weetabix. Like whether this, he just, this is just the way Paul talked, maybe. Um, God's commandments, like the Ten Commandments, they're good in themselves, but human beings are incapable of keeping them because, as we talked about earlier, we are under the thumb. We are enslaved by these powers that often we think we are in control of, but actually they have us, they have our hearts. 
Before the commandments came, there was no way of measuring our fallenness. But now our sinful nature is, is revealed by them. You know the saying, rules are meant to be broken. There's something about that that's actually deeply true. You can't break something until you've got a rule. Um, Once someone or something has told you what to do or told you where the boundaries are, there is something within the human heart that just wants to exceed those boundaries and break that rule. Um, Ultimately, this is the first story of the Bible, which Pippa read, that Adam and Eve in the garden thought, well, we, we can choose a better good than God's good. Ultimately, we can be uh, we can be God. You want to change, Darren? To... No, it's fine. Okay, that's fine. And it's very easy to see this in children. Now, I think um, Ivy and Zeke, our kids, they both think that they have a better version of good than their parents' version of good. But honestly, if they could choose their version of good, it would be awful. It would cause them real pain, and they just don't see that. You know, eating all the chocolate in the world or never going to sleep. Um, our Zeke has, we don't actually know how he does it, but we use, you know, white noise keeps, it's like this magic noise that keeps children asleep. <laughs> it's meant to. <laughs> we play it on an iPad that is across the other room, and there is um, like a two foot gap between his cot and the cabinet that it's now on. And last night, we came into his room at three in the morning. He had the iPad in his hands playing the noise. So somehow, in a full sleeping bag, he can climb the walls of his cot, which are as tall as him, and get over to the other side of the cabinet where there's a whole mound of clothes and then get back into the cot. <laughs> I, I, I now want to set up cameras in the room <laughs> to, see, to see him accomplish this amazing feat of acrobatics. It doesn't, when you look at him, it doesn't look humanly possible. But anyway, there you go. Um, Zeke, our son, he can say sorry. I have heard him say it. He knows the word, but he won't. And the reason, the main reason I think he doesn't is because I'm asking him to. You know, that I think genuinely I think that's the main reason is he just, he just doesn't want to because he doesn't want to obey me. <laughs> um, and uh, St. Augustine, he reflected on this himself. The first time he recognized this in his own life, his mother told him, don't go into the neighbor's orchard and pick the apples And he said, I wasn't thinking about the neighbor's orchards until my mom told me not to. And then (laughs) the next thing I found was I was leading a gang of youths marauding through the orchard and picking the apples and not even eating them. They weren't hungry, just feeding to to the pigs. And so Augustine, recognizing how the law or rules, as soon as they were there, he just desired to break them, something within the human nature. Paul says this, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul then makes this fascinating explanation of how, though he is now alive in Christ, he still struggles with the reality of sin in his life. Verse 20, um, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, 
evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Paul is saying that now his true self delights in God and desires to live in his will, to choose what God has called good. But there remains something in him. He feels this tension. He describes it as a war raging within him. I don't know whether you've ever felt like this, whether you've ever felt this tension, this like war inside you, telling yourself, I'll never do it again. That is the last time. I'm never doing this again. And then only in the near future, finding yourself in the same place and thinking, I've done it again. <laughs> and realizing that you have so little control over yourself and feeling, feeling trapped, feeling um, a sense of despair, doing the very thing that you hate. You know, I've been there. I've been there so many times with so many different things. And Paul describes it like this. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who has delivered me, who has given me the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, to righteousness, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So what is the true Paul? It's as if there's two Pauls living inside of him. What is the true Paul? The sinful nature or the renewed nature? Are they equally matched, forever doomed to be in a wrestling tussle with each other, one step forward, but only finding you make two steps back? Well, this scripture and the gospel says emphatically, no. No. Thanks be to God, he's given us the power, the victory, the deliverance, that our sinful nature is not our true nature, but rather the renewed nature that we've been talking about, particularly what Jamie talked about last week when talking about regeneration. Becoming your true self. That's, I don't know, have you heard that phrase? Becoming your true self, becoming your most authentic self. That's the gospel of our age, you know, self-actualization, becoming all you're meant to be. And um, in a way, it's a parody of the gospel um, because at the heart of Christianity is to become your true self, your most authentic self, that if you have received the new life, is to be a person who delights in God's law, who delights, who has chosen God's best for them, um, and who believes that God's best for them is the best, that they don't have another best. Ultimately, that we've decided God is God and we, we are not. That is what it is to become your true self. If you are in Christ, if you have received the gift of eternal life, then your true self is your identity as a child of God. Someone who loves God. Someone who desires to do his will, to please him. And the enemy... Enemy of our souls. I mean, I'm an old-fashioned Christian. I believe in a devil. <laughs> um, the enemy, he will come and try and show you evidence of your sinful nature, of the reality of sin in your life. And he'll go, Nathaniel, remember that thing that you did or said or thought? That was, that, between you and me, that, that was awful. <laughs> Oh, gosh, um, if anyone was to find out about that, you'd be in really trouble. You know, 
Christians oughtn't do that. Christians don't do that. Not someone who's received eternal life. And my answer to that, you know, whether it's coming from my own imagination who is condemning me or from an enemy of my soul who is condemning me, is to say, just as Paul says here, well, devil, or well, conscience, um, that wasn't me. That was sin, sin in me, but it, it wasn't the real me. It wasn't the true me, because the true me, my true self, is delights in God's law. That's what Paul is saying here. And I am on a journey towards the realization of my true self in Christ, that the, the outworking of my identity as a child of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, anyone know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? An amazing preacher. Yeah, Jamie knows him, Welsh preacher, preacher of the 20th century. Um, he I think he spent something like 10 years preaching through Romans. <laughs> and he, he preached probably more than 10, maybe 20 sermons on Romans 7 and Romans 8. Um, incredible. And uh, he, he came up with this analogy in just one of his talks on Romans 7. I'll share the analogy. Imagine there is a kingdom where one group of a certain creed enslaved and oppressed another group of a certain creed. And I suppose it's, it's, that's not that hard to imagine for us with the transatlantic slave trade and, and all of that. Um, imagine this happened. And over centuries, after centuries passed, the cry and prayer of this people was heard and there arose a true king, a fair king, who ended forever the slavery of this one group to another, who ended the oppression um, through legal mandate and through a battle won. So the slaves were now free. They were free. But their oppressor, though they had no power or legitimacy, continued to oppress the former slaves. But having no authority to do so, it was in each person's power to stand up to these bullies in the name of the good and fair king and tell them their rights as subjects of the kingdom. But sadly, many of the freed slaves remained just as chained as they were previously, as they wouldn't stand up to the bullies. That's Martin Lloyd-Jones describing the state of many Christians. Though they are legally free, they have the power to stand up to these bullies that have previously kept us under the thumb and enslaved. However, they don't stand on their rights, one for us on the cross of Jesus. The gospel does not leave us as we are. It changes us. The gift of eternal life, it, it doesn't, it's not that it said, like, I've done all this, now just get on with it by trying really hard. It, rather, it gives us power to enable us to break the chains off us. And that is crucial for us as followers of Jesus, that we're given power to break off habits, addictions, things that keep us enslaved, that there is a supernatural gift to us that enables us to live in that way. We're not powerless. The origins of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I think... Uh, a famous theologian said it, it's, it's, the, it's the most significant thing to come out of America ever, is Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the origins are deeply 
shaped by the Christian faith and by the power of the gospel. The 12 steps form basically a commentary and an application on Romans 7. Um, And and we're going to go through them, actually. Just a a quick whistle-stop tour as we end. Don't worry, I'm not going to then preach on the 12 steps after that. (laughs) And um, this is all about alcohol, which is a horrible addiction. And, but you could insert anything really into this, anything in which you've realized that you don't have power over it to be free. And so you, some of us might be really familiar with the 12 steps and other of us are kind of vaguely familiar but have never, never read them. So I'm going to do that now. Um, and insert, you know, as I said, insert whatever. It could be, uh, for you, it could be money. <laughs> could be romantic attachments, could be the thing that actually have, has, has you enslaved. could be an inordinate desire to be thin or to be liked. Um, could be your career, could be your children turning out perfect or going down a certain path, etc., etc., you know, whatever it is for you. It's going to be a number of things, but hey. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends. Step nine, we made amends to such people where possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Step 10, we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And these are the really crucial bits. Step 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Step 12, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. There may have been points as I've been talking about freedom and not having to exist under the thumb of the powers of sin that enslaves us, where you found yourself thinking about that thing, you know, your thing that is particular to you, your struggle, your battle that we all have. You know, I'm now convinced that we look at other people and see them as um, sorted. And we think, oh, if only we were sorted. But actually, no one's sorted. Everyone is, has their stuff. Everyone has their struggle. And you may have been thinking what your thing is that you are struggling with. And the frustration that you may have been a follower of Jesus for so long but seen so little change in this area. 
But I tell you today, and I'm preaching to myself as well, that the gospel gives us power to make that change. We're not making it out of our own willpower or self-effort, but rather it is God's gift to us. That's his miracle to us. And that when you struggle and when you fall, the grace of God is it's not the real you anymore. You're not living into your true self, but rather uh, you are on a journey to your most authentic self, which is fully realizing, fully living out, fleshing out what it means to be a child of God, a daughter, a son, someone who is loved by God and desires to please him and to do his will. Let's pray, uh, and then I'm going to hand back over to Jane. And perhaps as we receive communion in a little while, we can be conscious of the war that is within us, but the power that we've been given to have victory over uh, the war within us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of the gospel that changes us. Lord, we thank you for the honesty of the Apostle Paul who reflected on his own journey. And Lord, I pray that we together, as individuals, but as a whole church family, would be on that journey towards becoming our true self. That we are already that, but it's a work that goes from the in, it's been received on the inside and it's been working out uh, onto the outside. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.